welcome to the 13th episode of the Invisibility Today podcast. I'm your tiny disabled host, Laura Elliott. This month, I'm so excited to introduce you to Penny Pepper, a writer, poet and performer who's here today to talk about her groundbreaking memoir, First in the World Somewhere, performing as the naked punk and writing the first user-led, user-written sexuality guide for young disabled people. Welcome to the show, Penny. Thank you for asking me, Laura. It's uh, great to be here and I'm looking forward to it very much. I'm looking forward to having you on. Um, So firstly, can you tell us all a little bit about your background and work? Slightly big question to start. Where do I begin? Well, I suppose what's closest to my heart is the thing I've done all my life, which is I'm a writer and I've written various things, a whole range, broad range of things since childhood. And I believe the first serious efforts to get my work noticed occurred within the punk era, because I am that old. I was an original punk. <laughs> and it's the the punk ethic, the punk belief in do-it-yourself. So I was able to... I mean, we still have fanzines and indie magazines now and I think they've had a resurgence because they're actually so easy to do at home now. In those days it was, you know, various committed people would do one on someone's photocopier in the office (laughs) and some of them got quite, you know, well known and that's where my poems first appeared. And last year, because of my memoir coming out, and I, I know we're going to talk about that, someone actually wrote to me who remembered me in a, my poems in a fanzine in something ridiculous, like 1989. That's incredible. So, I know. <laughs> You've been having an impression for that long then? Well, yeah, maybe not as much as I would like, but uh, that's one thing when you're a writer, if you're serious... You have to be an optimist. You have to find that optimism every time you're ground face down in the in the dirt. Um, because the the reality for most writers is it's tough, and you have to maintain that self belief somewhere that that what you want to say is either entertaining or challenging or provoking or witty. And I hope that mine my work is all of that. By the way. <laughs> I also feel that as a as a younger woman, I was very aware there wasn't anything concerning the, the disabled story, as in told, written, expressed by disabled people. There was plenty of experts telling us what we should feel and what was expected. And I was like, you know, there I am, I'm a, I'm a punk. And I looked punky then, and I believed in self-responsibility and taking control of of what you wanted to do and what you could be so I'm like no 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 but I would say I'm probably still doing that even now you know because it's very very slow progress so I I worked as a publications officer for a a charity you know a voluntary sector which was quite radical in its day and it was there I did the first user-led user-written sexuality guide for young disabled people and from that, there was like a, a journey, really, because then I got asked to contribute. I got asked to contribute in other people's work, um, which led to me doing the collection of erotica. I won a, a, an award called an Innovate Award, which was run through the Arts Council, and I won that in order to self-publish Desires. You've so. had the most unconventional life, and you've touched on so much of it just there. But um, 
one thing I did want to ask you is is how how did you find being a punk and being part of that movement as a young disabled woman? I mean, I I didn't know punk was necessarily known for its ac- accessibility back in the day. Did you did you cause a stir? Did you have to kind of force your way in, or were you very accepted in it? As a general rule, it was very accepting of anybody who was defined as different. In terms of access, it was pretty horrific. I didn't go to any gigs of any note, but I did work because out of that as well, I was in, I was connected to a group of musicians in North London. And I know we're going to talk about my book, but this is really part of that, that how I managed to move to London from very rural Buckinghamshire on a council estate and get to uh, East London, sort of new manager, boyfriend other musicians and form a band, do a poetry cassette. So it was more the the people I worked with and, and created friendships with were very accepting. And they never for one moment felt that I should be barred from anything. And that was a very revelatory and uplifting experience in itself. I mean it but there was a weird acceptance back then, not not in any malicious way, even from disabled people, that you just knew 99.9 of everywhere would be inaccessible. And across the board, whether it was, you know, the classics, inaccessible environmental barriers, inaccessible information, it was all inaccessible. It was at the beginning of particularly disability arts movement, and I'm very proud I was involved in the early days. And a lot of us had come from the punk ethic, once I moved to London, I did start to do more, but it was it was like a complete lack of any infrastructure. I think the the very young disabled people of today do reap a benefit. I hope that you you know that a bus will be accessible. It might not be perfect. It might be a bit shitty, but you know it's actually there. Yeah, it was non-existent. You couldn't rely on... I mean, I have this, and I know we might talk about it because I'm on, on a tour at the moment, and we still have problems, hotels and venues and whatever, but now there's a an acceptance that that's wrong. Back in the day, it just wasn't even remotely thought about. So in order to get from A to B, I used to save up and raid my you know gas meter money <laughs> to get a taxi to go and go to a rehearsal room or you know, go to a gig or whatever. Mm. I went to two punk gigs in North London and on both of them, I escaped serious injury by the skin of my teeth. Mm. So that was fairly off-putting, should we say. Yeah, if there's no kind of disabled access in a gig environment, you're liable to get people thrown on top of you, I would imagine. Yeah, and also just climbing over you without even necessarily realising you were there. So so I had my manager who was managing me in the development of my band and also, you know, coming out of my poetry. So he was also like my bouncer and um, he would look after me. I was a tiny bit more mobile then, but it wasn't conducive. I mean, I went, you know, I went through all the stuff. I was, I was a Carrie Newman fan and I went to see him at Wembley. Oh, wow. Wembley Arena. <laughs> And the funny thing about that, they still managed to put me 12 steps from the seat. Oh, for goodness sake. So my baby brother, who's only a little bit baby from me, he's bigger than me, he carried me down. 
so it goes on and on and uh i do i do think that at least now you can go well that's not right that's breaking the law why are you doing that it's just ironic i think we are still fighting that and we're fighting the fact that you know people still get in terrible tears about what their responsibilities are and I, I do like the fact that now we talk much more about inclusion. Yeah. And that disability is part of the normal human experience. I think that's, you know, normal in quotes, but that's the whole point. It's it's an everyday experience that will happen. Yeah. And I, I'm a great believer in that, that it, the, the less it's seen as other, and it's a, because that's not a reality, that's not a truth, the better it will be for all of us. And you've you've touched on it just now, but you are touring with your Naked Punk show at the moment. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a bit about the show and um, how this has kind of been developed? Well, for about 15 years, I have done spoken word. And I can, I'm going to blame, lay the blame where the blame belongs. <laughs> <laughs> this is due to Liz Carr, because she's one of my best buddies. She's in my memoir, actually. Um, where we first met, but uh, yeah, Lizzie's a great friend and a great, generous advocate. Not you know, not just for me, but lots of people. And she said to me one day, well, you know, because I trained with Grey Eye Theatre Company as a mature student and did a year's university with them in performing arts. So I had these new honed skills. And she said to me, well, why don't you? create you know a kind of public face for your work because you do poetry and you know you're good so it started from there and it's just been a journey of learning and improving and I feel that with the Naked Punk because it's kind of the Naked Punk project with a tour aspect and the Naked Punk is a I've got like a manifesto and uh, it's about being true and open and bringing in my punk ethics about personal responsibility and how you make choices for yourself. And it's also about metaphors around nakedness. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have been naked a few times and I've done burlesque and I've done nude modelling in my 30s and I feel that to do to do modeling for artists particularly disabled artists is extremely empowering mm. it's not for everybody it's not like I'm saying everyone should go out and get naked but it is it's liberating it's actually not what people think because artists see you with their own eyes yeah and they're not they're not interested in reinforcing cliches or stereotypes and i've worked with some great artists really really lovely people and photographers so i bring some of that into my show i talk about being naked and i ask the audience when they were like naked <laughs> and we have a little laugh about that and then i'll do a poem which is called the model and that's just one little bit but it's almost like I did a one-woman show in 2015 mm. called Lost in Spaces, and I've taken some elements of that and built them into a new framework which reflects a lot of my current work. So I do extracts from the novel, the novel, I'm getting ahead of myself, the <laughs> memoir, first in the world somewhere. So there's little bits from that. There's lots from my poetry collection, which came out last September. And that's, you know, after all this time, that's like, my debut poetry collection. Wow. Oh, no, no. So it's a great thing 
to have done after a lifetime of you know trying so i'm very very happy I bet. it's a very good publisher who are actually supporting a lot of disabled poets across all impairment groups oh really what is who are you published by for the poetry they're called they're called burning eye books Oh, I do know Burning Eye Books, yes. Yeah, based in Bristol. It seems also that everything is just has been happening for you in the last few years. You seem to have found your feet and found um, some real recognition for your poetry and for your writing and for your performing. Have you noticed, has it changed the way you approach your work, being it's like becoming slightly better known, or, or, or do you just approach it with the same way you would always? Well, I've, I've been very lucky because I now have a management company called Renaissance One and they look after effectively some of the best spoken word artists in the country. So I'm very lucky that they took me on. They support me with Arts Council grants and I would say that's really the way I go now because of, because of where I am. Renaissance One helped me get a grant and then we roll out the work. I would say, though, it is a funny thing, and I, I hate saying anything negative, so I don't really want to set, make it sound negative. But being a writer, poet, all of these things, it's very rare that you make money. Mm. Very rare. And, uh, well, it, it does become very frustrating because there's still an issue. There's still an issue around the word disability, disabled person. What's that? Who's that? Are we interested? Is it interesting to us? No, it's boring. It's negative. I don't want to think about it. And you're always having to get around that like a, like it's a circus act. Yeah. And you have to be full of tricks to get around it and say... I mean, one thing that drives me mad, if someone mentions diversity and inclusion and they haven't mentioned disabled artists... Yeah, it happens I, very frequently as well. I am peed off because then it means you're missing out. I mean, we've had it a little bit with working class writers and then you get intersectionality, which I'm a big, you know, supporter of and because I come from a working class background and then and then it's like you don't want it to be hierarchical, but don't leave us out. Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm a disabled woman over 50 who's from a working class background so our voices are just as valid yeah and you um, can't separate it out i mean you were you were all those things and disability isn't any less important than those other things it's part of my identity i do think sometimes that can be a barrier within the context of pr because it's not often it's not necessarily the pr you're working with but the people who are on the receiving end. They almost don't know what to do with you. And there was some funny things with the memoir which highlight this, in that my, my memoir, First in the World Somewhere, was categorised in some very strange places, in libraries and even bookshops, and people would send me pictures of them. It did get categorised in social care. OK. Now, the funny thing about that is... The word disability only appears once on the cover in very tiny print at the back because it isn't a work about disability. It's a, a work about Penny Pepper who's done X, Y, Z. And some of that involves recognition that I'm disabled by an oppressive society. Yeah. And this so, is also something that confuses people when, when you talk about the um, social model of disability yeah. and you say, you know, I'm disabled by society's unwillingness to let me enter spaces and to let me and people go huh 
Yeah, then you have to give them quick quality training. I do it a lot. Yeah. The thing within my PR, I have to make sure people understand how I approach it. I won't do out-and-out medical stuff unless it has a specific reason. And I won't do any triumph, you know, over tragedy or you can imagine. It just, just doesn't enter my being in any shape or form. So, and that can be... I know some writers that have done that, particularly, well, I say that, probably they're ghostwriters, like sports people. And when my memoir was in, like, in the sort of development, it was uh, not long after the Olympics and all, and the Paras. And, and even then, people were saying, you've still got to be interesting because, you know, you can be a one-trick pony, as it were, and have, have your my great battle to be a sports person. But what's next? Yeah. And that's one reason it took me a long time to do a memoir. I wanted to have a lot to write about. And there is a lot to write about. So, you know, that was okay. But it's still weird that people are lazy. I did find out it's happened to other writers in other, you know, kind of disenfranchised groups, if you like. Because, oh, I don't know, a library uh, member of staff might not understand the resonance within a title. So they're not getting it, you know. Or they focused on this one little word, disabled, and then they thought, oh, well, that's that. That's where that belongs. I was also put in sociology. <laughs> to be studied, clearly. Absolutely. A specimen yet again. So there you go. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, you were certainly making a stir, if nothing else, um, confusing everyone wherever you go. Yeah, I just, um, you know, I, I just want people to buy more copies of the book because that enables me to do another one. But it, it is a tough world and publishing is a business because if I did my advice to younger writers is, is to remember that. That and to always say, make sure you read as broadly as possible. Read what you like and where you think your work belongs because you're going to be expected to know that. So if you start by treating yourself professionally, others will see that. Yeah. I've done a lot of mentoring and workshops, leading, you know, work, facilitating workshops. And it amazes me how many people, it's worse with poets, actually. You say, who's your favourite poet? What was the last poetry book you read? And so many people go, oh, no, no, I haven't, I haven't read any. And it's hard for me. I'd always be kind. I'm a kind person. But, you know, I would have to say gently... But you need to. Reading is, is the food that feeds your writing. You can't be a great writer without having found great writers that you love and read them. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it surprises me. And these days, it's so much easier to access. That is a change. Because, I, I mean, I can't hold a book anymore. I've got a Kindle. But it's still not the easiest thing. Mm. So I'm very much moving into audiobooks now. I would love to do an audiobook of the memoir. That's what I, I'm hoping that will happen in the next year or so, which would be great. But, um, yeah, I forgot what the original question was there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think we were talking about the Naked Punk show and then we got on to writing. Yeah, the Naked Punk show. So it, there's often a Q&A and people can ask me stuff and then I do a signing there's a book signing and I get a bit of I'd, some of my poems have a, a collaborative aspect so I ask people to join in and shout things at me they're a bit naughty, there's some swear words but a few naughty words And but it is great, I've got a poem called Special 
which is I'm trying to dismantle the whole idea of special needs. I went to a special school and um, awful, awful experience. But the, the word special is so abused in its own right. It's, a, it's an abused term. But at the end, I get everyone to say with me, I am effing special. <laughs> And it's really liberating. Yeah. It's liberating. And, and to get people joining in across all walks of life, you know, all backgrounds is just wonderful. And I like to do a thing where you can ask me anything. I'm not shy or nervous. Or What's the weirdest thing you've been asked during an Ask Me Anything? I think someone once asked me something about winning an erotic Oscar. <laughs> But I kind of knew them a little bit, so they were being cheeky. But I did win an erotic Oscar what? in 1999. What is an erotic Oscar? You're going to have to explain this for me. There's um, an event called, um, it used to be called the Sex Maniacs Ball, and now it's called Night of the Senses, and it's a fundraising event for, I don't know if you've heard of them, the Outsiders Club. It rings a bell, but I couldn't tell you what. They're a sort of socialising club for disabled people and people with sort of social anxiety and stuff like that it's where i met my second husband gabriel bepper oh i've been a member on and off for years sort of had various ups and downs with them but in 99 i was finishing i might have been a bit later actually because i won i got an oscar for services towards disability and sexuality i love that that's so cool (laughs) I know, I've still got the certificate, but the Oscar itself was a bloody grotesque thing. It was a wooden a wooden willy <laughs> with, with wings on it. Oh, brilliant. That's so brilliant. Yeah, so I kind of lobbed it somewhere. I don't know. It's probably it's probably got lost as well where I moved. And, yeah, I mean, uh, you can't exactly display it on your mantelpiece, can you? Not really, no. <laughs> it wasn't the nicest thing to look at. But I have got the certificate. But I'm not really, you know, I'm not shy about talking about anything like that. I was actually going to ask you, because you, you obviously wrote Desires, and I think that was, your Desire work was 2003? That was a while ago now, but um, you've been, you've always kind of included this in your work. And why is it, do you think, that people find disabled people discussing sex and sexuality quite so almost disturbing like people get really shocked by it and do you, have you seen that change or or do people still get shocked by this this shocking idea that disabled people have and enjoy sex i think this issue is is quite polarized because you get it wrapped up in little bows on the one hand where it's it's kind of if it's tied on to a triumph over tragedy scenario or it's safe, then it's okay. But the moment it starts to seem dangerous, it's different. And I believe this is because many human beings, disabled and non-disabled, have hang-ups about their sexuality and their sexual needs, their, their sexual performance. I was talking about that. I was interviewed about that the other week, about sexual anxiety and how that affects disabled people but i actually feel that in many ways we have something to teach people some of us you know i'm not saying every single disabled person (laughs) or anything that daft but because we go we have to go on a journey we have to communicate we have to express and the non-disabled seem to find that immensely difficult 
Whereas if I didn't express certain things, that hurts, that doesn't hurt, no, you can't do that or break. Yeah. I would never have had a sex life. So I do think it's part the part of the sort of dichotomy about it is to do with the the whole body beautiful thing, the photoshopping of everybody. Mm. I think you also get a hierarchy and and we may be guilty of this ourselves within if you like the disability movement, whatever we want to call it, that we judge each other. And you do get, you certainly get a hierarchy. There was um, a fuss with the um, disabled people are hot thing. Yeah. Because I think the Daily Mail, one of those papers, picked up on it. And the only pictures they showed were what I call very acceptable looking disabled women. Very traditionally beautiful. Yes. Who could look like non-disabled people sitting in a wheelchair, more or less, you know, body proportion slim blah 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 so of course it looked it looked false and i know a few people who were like oh isn't this just you know perpetuating the trope of women as objects and whatever but i i i cottoned onto that very quickly and it's done by uh andrew gerza i'm going on his show soon on his podcast oh brilliant i love andrew's podcast it's brilliant yeah yes yeah. it is and and just that you know I and mean, he's into queer crip culture and and he he's kind of I always laugh when you say walking the talk I want to say wheeling the spiel <laughs> it's not like he's separate separating himself or, or giving out an order a remit you must look like this and if you because I'm on Instagram far too much it's big on Instagram and I love it there's there's young people older people there's there's young men um older women all saying disabled people are hot yeah the whole range of imagery it's not a, a set trope that we're all tired of well yeah the tabloids didn't pick up on that did they of course not well of course not because they just clicked on the hashtag and went what will our readers most like to see yeah, exactly. Pretty young women in wheelchairs. Mm. Yeah, so I think that 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 highlighted something for me. And then you get um, something like undateables, which I have mixed feelings about. Mm. They did ask me to do some sort of consultancy on it way back, but I didn't really fancy it. And then when they said, "Oh, we thought of a name. What do you think of it?" And they went, it's irony, it's irony. And I know it's been popular, it's been incredibly popular. However, I just think it, it positions itself like a wildlife programme. Yeah, I agree. I, I think... best things about it are the characters, are the individuals. Yes. The actual disabled people who are in it. And they make it or break it. So on that sense, they've, put, they've picked good characters with great warm stories. I've met a few of them, actually. But sometimes I feel it's a little exploitative and I'm, I'm not. And I think it's a setup as well. I just think it's a setup for entertainment. Mm. I don't, I'm not entirely comfortable with it. I wish it was a programme called The Undateables with everybody in it. Yes, I, yeah, that would, that would sit a little better, better with me, I think, as well. Just that it was people who were really shy or hadn't asked anyone out for 20 years. Or it could be all sorts of combinations that just had that heading. And the disability aspect could be purely about prejudice. Yeah, completely. So I don't know. I just, I just think that that's safe. 
you're a non-disabled person, it's a safe exploration. But, I, I mean, in, in all honesty, it has improved, but it's slow. It kind of comes forward. And, like, I think I sent you the thing I've just done for the Huffington Post about the Facebook fracas. Yeah. There's going to be a bit more about that going on tomorrow. There's going to be a protest. Oh, really? I might be live streaming, going back to the, the Naked Punk, really, that I don't... I can't tour regularly or travel regularly. Um, I get tired really quickly and it has an impact on my health. Mm. It's partly old age, but also impairments. But but obviously I want to do it as long as possible. So so I'm gently managing that. So it's roughly one gig a month and then other bits and pieces. But that's that means I can't, I cannot, I just cannot afford to go to protests and whatever where I live in Hastings now and I used to live in London so. how did you find living in London and and then moving out of it again because we've we've talked a little bit about accessibility obviously the London underground isn't known for its accessibility but then rural areas aren't either so d- did you find a contrast between the big city and the r- the more rural living well when I first moved to London yeah massive because you know even if you think of somewhere say like that was 1985 I moved to London. So I could get into places like the British Museum. Even then, they did have a lift. But now, back in Hastings, it's not a big place, but the difference you've got is community. So you can approach people without feeling like a number. And generally, people are responsive. Although Hastings is so hilly, and half the the properties are built on diagonals, so... <laughs> Sometimes you've got seven steps at the front and then one at the back and you have to work out if you can get through. So that was maybe not the greatest idea, but I do love it. I feel very happy to be within a community. I'm only about an hour and a half away by car. And and that was another thing I did because of my tour as well. And I have to take loads of things with me. So I've got a wheelchair accessible van for the first time. And I, I, I love it. But I, I do wish that the tube was a little more accessible. It's getting there. Mm. I used to go... Have you ever lived in London? Do you live in London? Uh, no, I, uh, I've i worked in London... For, so I used to work summers in London when I was at university. So I've done a few months here and there, but never permanently. Well, there's a line called the Orange Line, and it's mostly overground. Although it's it's kind of looked after by the underground, it's called the Overground. And it was quite near to where I lived in, in Islington. And 90, we might be 100% accessible. So I could go like to Kew Gardens from my, on the train. I could go to Richmond. Some of the things where, it's like here actually, where I live, which is St Leonard's part of Hastings. The station's only accessible one side. That's useful. So you have to go up and down this immense hill. A really immense hill to get to the other side of the station there's no lifts going across to get you across there is at Hastings thankfully but not at St Leonard's whereas in in Islington Islington was very accessible um and there was a commitment to it and also getting political one end of Islington was represented by Jeremy Corbyn after all who I met many times <laughs> oh I'm so jealous he's such a lovely guy he really is a lovely guy I just I hope that you know the country can get that it's not fate 
Mm. You know, I must have, I don't know many times, I've met him in Parliament, and I met him just before I left as he said, because I was a Labour Party member and I have been for a long time, I met him at one of our fundraising events and got some great photos with him and just said, you know, we're there with you. He was always supportive of our DPO to say, you know, the, the, it's called Disability Action in Islington. And we used to hold a lot of the DPAC meetings there and everything, so... Oh, cool. And a lot of the, you know, the lead DPAP folk were Islington-based. So it's got a lovely, you know, it, it, it's not like I've just read their policies and, oh, I like Jeremy Corbyn. I've actually met him and never found him to be fake. Mm. That's... I just hope he's not too nice, the bloody electorate, because we're just so obsessed with this kind of tough image politician and look where it's got us. No way nice. Yeah, we've got so. the second Margaret Thatcher, basically, haven't we? So. No, I fought the first one. So I do a lot of poems about Thatcher, because a lot of my poems are do about the political edge. So. What I did want to ask you about is um, you've just finished up the draft of your latest novel, from what I hear. Are I... you able to tell us anything about it? Yes, I, I will be delighted to tell you a little bit. It's called Fancy Nancy and it's set in two timelines. It's set in Victorian, late Victorian, about 1871, 1873, and also a contemporary setting. There's kind of a, a, an element of, of overlapping storylines there. So it's kind of the same main character, which is Nancy. Nancy Jones and it's really a parallel narrative about what it's like to be different and who sees you as different. There's a storyline about that's quite grim which is about abuse and reflective of the sort of Jimmy Savile um, event but then there's hopefully people will find there's lots of fun there's lots of there's lots of sex there's heroes and there's because in the Victorian, I missed a really important part of that, in the Victorian era, Nancy gets stuck there. And although she's like a contemporary person from now, she gets stuck. So she forms her own version of a freak show. Oh, amazing! And, and she calls it Fancy Nancy's Show of Wonders. And it's like how the two reflect and link, and she's wanted by this... Uh, super evil sort of occultist magician who thinks she's like some kind of alien specimen he knows that she doesn't really belong there and it becomes that's the quest she has to get away and i really wanted to do a thing about freak shows that that was about because it is actually true it starts pretty near to when the elephant man joseph merrick was displayed in whitechapel and how, in fact, the famous film that they did about him wasn't entirely true. He did make quite a bit of money that his managers gave him. It wasn't all about exploitation. Okay. There was exploitation, don't get me wrong, but some, like, he chose that rather than going to the workhouse. Interesting. And I am interested in that, and that I'm interested in how that reflects today, because I believe we have freak show telly, Mm. and Channel 5 are the worst. You know, like the man whose face fell off. Yes. The man, the man with 20 limbs, the girl with no bottom or whatever. You know, all those things. And it's just, it's it's freak show. I watched one by accident. I get a bit transfixed like a rabbit in the headlights. Mm. 
Because I'm like, is this real? The thing that really, really desperately upsets me to the point of making me cry sometimes is they take you on this story and then there's a dead end. Yeah. And you think, these poor bastards. It's like they must think, oh, yeah, these TV people from the West have come in and are going to do X, Y, Z. And often there just seems to be this blunt cut-off. Where nothing's really improved and nothing's been accomplished, but... yeah. Yes, like they might be moved, I don't know, 20 tumours from some guy's face or whatever, but you don't know, like, and that's going to be the least of his worries at this point. You want to know, like, what's the support, what's the rehab, or will he just be reduced back to the man with 20 scars? You know what I mean? It's because there's no... And they've got their... And I've done a bit of telly, and I know what it's like even here. You you get so immersed, and they love you, and it's part of their job to love you, but then, then they're over it, and off you go. Yeah. And that's it. And obviously, we've got a bit more... Maybe we can, we can be more indulgent about it. Despite everything, we have a better infrastructure than some poor woman having to display herself as a freaking Indonesia or something. Yeah. And I hope that doesn't sound patronising. I think it's the truth. I hear um, I've got quite a few American friends and we still see, and it is partly we've had a strong movement of disabled people, so we still often see like the land of milk and honey, despite austerity. I think, uh, yeah, I've got a couple of close friends who, who would love to live here, but it's like, yeah, it's not quite like that anymore. Yeah, we, we've still got a lot of work to do after the austerity years, it has to be said. Yeah, we, we've got to pick up what was lost, what was damaged, and obviously it sickens you to your stomach to know so many people have died. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll continue to if we don't... I mean, I did. I was part of the first protest on Parliament Square where they laid out 10,000 flowers. Oh, really? Yeah, and I did some poetry that day. And, of course, it's gone way past that figure now. It is culling through the back door. It really is. Anyway, I've just got to stay alive to be defiant and say up yours. So. <laughs> you know what? There are worse reasons to, to stay alive, and I think being defiant is definitely up there with a good old reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, actually, this, this leads me quite nicely into my next question, which is you've had a life in activism in various roles. So who are some of the activists you most admire and have whether or not you've worked with them over the years? I think on the recent... Since 2010 in particular, I would have to say Paula Peters. She's indefatigable. What a brilliant word to use to describe someone. Well, she is, and and I know she has a lot of stuff to deal with, you know, like many of us do, but she always found that little extra push to just do a thing. I mean, obviously, I'm greatly uh, impressed by Deepak. But it is a funny thing to think about because when I was young, there wasn't really any protests. Mm. And I've spent a lot of the 90s in particular being ill. So I admire a lot of the people that did the transport stuff, like Liz. Liz was chaining herself to buses when, you know, there wasn't an accessible one in sight. And that whole gang that were doing that those actions at a time when it was just absolutely mind-boggling the telecom protests in the 90s just all that all that whole gang that were the direct action network Mm. they just bowled me over and we've lost so many sadly we've lost so many and then 
I think within disability arts activism, which is a different type of activism, but it has a historical context after all. So there's my great friend and supporter, Colin Hambrook, who runs Disability Arts Online. And I've known Colin forever and ever and ever. And he's unfailing in supporting new artists and new voices. And recently, of course, we lost a great talent, which was Catherine Arianello. And I don't know if you know her work, but please search it out. It's it's wonderfully shocking. She, she passed about a month, six weeks ago. She was a visual artist, a live artist, and did so many great kind of retaliations in art about that we're, we're portrayed as pathetic and weak and you know and she attacked that with art amazing um, and i've had the privilege to work with her we kind of come up with this thing called sick bitch trips love that and she ran with that and developed it you know really well but i feel privileged that it came up when one day we were sitting there with the cups of tea it is very brutal a lot of people can't take it, but to see this, in quotes, severely impaired woman who needs support with feeding or whatever in these extreme, hilarious situations is, is so powerful. So I would check her out. Now, I love Liz to bits. Liz is my mate. Liz is a, an absolute talent. And I do hope, we were joking about this on Twitter, but not joking. I would love to write something for her. Come on, BBC. Yes. That's a collaboration I'd be into. Yeah, I'm happy to be, you know, work in a partnership. I'll write a piece for Silent Witness or I'll write something new. Before we ended the interview, Penny agreed to perform one of her poems for us, the way she conducted it on stage. And here it is. And what I do is I look at the audience and say, now we might talk about labels, what do you think you are? What label do you have? Sometimes if I've done a workshop, I make people take on labels they don't like. And I'll say, actually, looking at the state of you lot, I know what you are. Like me, you're a scrounger. I'm a sponger, a scrounger, a lazy-ass lounger, a raspberry and rainbow. I pose you no danger. I'm the bottomless pit of your pity and debt on the sixth John Major. I'm still on it, yet. Yeah. I'm the latest cheap target, the tabloid's dark darling, draining the markets, the unit of measure, economic displeasure. I'm a blamed useless eater, a foul fraud repeater. Do I make it all up? They say that I suck the money from purses of rich bloated bastards. The kicks and the curses fall from us leaders on us liars and bleeders. We're pariahs and feeders. Gorged on too much from the big nanny state. You've condemned us already. There is no debate. We can't be sustained because bankers are greedy. We're lazy, we're rank, we're targets of hate to eradicate. But I'm a rouser with words to shout and to hit, saying who are the Nazis raking over this shit? I shout and I spin at the string of their lies. I'm a new Bodicea, together we rise. They have no compassion, yet we own rebellion and rage with our passion as time is rushing. Defiance it chimes. We dare to fight back, we dare to fight proud. We dare, we dare, we dare.
You can follow Penny and her work on Twitter at at penpep and visit her website www.pennypepper.co.uk for upcoming tour dates and links to her published work. Now we come to our final section of the show and this month I have two big things you should be checking out as soon as possible. In literary and writing visibility, Karen Haviland's incredible book, Please Read This Leaflet Carefully, is now out in the world. I received a copy for review a few weeks ago and it is one of the best depictions of chronic pain I've ever read. Told in a powerful reverse chronology and featuring a main character with endometriosis as she deals with life, motherhood, her career and explores her sexuality, you do not want to miss this novel. You can buy it now from Dedic Books in the UK and from Dotter Press in the US. And if you're a young disabled artist in the US between the ages of 16 and 25, you have until the 5th of June to enter the VSA Emerging Young Artists Programme with a top prize of $20,000. Details can be found on their website and I'll share the link on Twitter as well. For now, we've reached the end of May's podcast and I'll see you all again in June. If there's a disability topic, activist, creator or news story you'd like to see featured here this year, you can contact me on Twitter at at visibilitytoday or email visibilitytoday at gmail.com. For now, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next month for another look at what's in visibility then.